Good morning. Happy Father's Day. I'm clearly the best father. It's a competition, right? No, no, okay. Uh, you know, it's, these days are funny because, like, we want to celebrate. Jessica, you did a great job of addressing this. We always want to celebrate fathers, like the fathers in the room, the fathers we've had. But with every day like this, Mother's Day, Father's Day, Christmas, there's always pain associated with it. And um, there are a lot of people in the room whose fathers aren't here anymore, and that's painful. Uh, there's people who are estranged from kids, and that's painful. Um, and so we know this is a day of joy to celebrate fatherhood. It's a day of reflection. It can be a day of sorrow, and we just acknowledge that. It's not easy for everybody. So keep that in mind as you're out and about greeting people. Um, I also want to do what Jessica did and, and remind us, like Joe was here last week. He gave this beautiful exhortation to us as a church to think in terms of spiritual family. Uh, regardless of where you're at, if you have kids or not, if you are a dad, you're not, if you have a good dad or you don't, uh, none of that matters. The calling on your life from here is to change the narrative moving forward, that you would walk in a way that you are a father figure to the generation below you, that you're investing spiritually in the people coming up after you, um, and that we're looking around at the men and women round about us and asking for spiritual moms and spiritual dads who will invest in us. Um, so happy Father's Day. <laughs> let's celebrate that and let's try and be a church that's changing the narrative of our culture, that we're a church of good fathers investing in the next generation. So we're in this series called Sent. I'm hoping after 21 weeks of this, that it's sinking in, that we want to be a church that's sent. I'm hoping we're understanding that to be a Christian, to be a disciple of Jesus means being sent out into the world, and that when we're not doing that intentionally, we're kind of failing at what we're called to do. This is a core part of our identity. So we've got a few more weeks, like, it's what, seven more weeks of this, um, as we dive into what it means to be sent out into the world. Um, so this week we're looking at Acts 21. Uh, this is the conclusion of Paul's third missionary journey. Um, so he has done the work. He's going to arrive back in Jerusalem today. Um, and we get to watch again this pattern of investment in people, of encouraging the believers, and of how he perseveres in the midst of opposition. Um, so let's jump in. This is picking up the story, uh, Acts 21. We're only going to go part of the way through the chapter this week, which means we've got a longer one next week. Hooray! Uh, so this is Acts chapter 21, starting at verse 1, and we're going to read through verse 20. So it says, after we had torn ourselves away from them, he's just been meeting with the elders in Ephesus. They've been weeping together. They guided him to the ship. He says, after we'd torn ourselves away from them, see his love for these people, we put out to sea and we sailed straight to Kos, which happens to be where Mon and I did our honeymoon. Uh, the next day we went to Rhodes and from there to Patara. We found a ship crossing over to Phoenicia, went on board and set sail. After sighting Cyprus and passing to the south of it, we sailed on to Syria. We landed at Tyre, where a ship was to unload its cargo. So they had to stop because the ship had something to do. So what did they do? We sought out the disciples there. We stayed with them seven days. Through this spirit, they urged Paul not to go on to Jerusalem. When it was time to leave, we left and continued on our way. 
All of them, including wives and children, accompanied us out of the city, and there on the beach we knelt to pray. Can you imagine what that looked like to the people around about? Um, after saying goodbye to each other, we went aboard the ship, and they returned home. We continued our voyage from Tyre and landed at Ptolemy, and there we greeted our brothers and sisters and stayed with them for a day. Leaving the next day, we reached Caesarea, which is one of the most beautiful sites to go see, uh, and we stayed at the house of Philip the Evangelist. Remember, all the way back to Acts 6, where they appoint these seven deacons. Philip was one of them. Um, he was one of the seven. He had four unmarried daughters who prophesied. So just by way of reminder, Paul, uh, Luke really cares in his writing about elevating the role of women. So he takes every opportunity to show that there are women here who are significant in carrying the work forward. Didn't need to mention this line. These anonymous gals, there's no reason for this to be in the story. He's highlighting a point. He had four unmarried daughters who prophesied. The fulfillment of Joel, that the Spirit's going to fall on sons and daughters. They will prophesy, dream dreams, see visions. Um, after we had been there a number of days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea. Coming over to us, he took Paul's belt, tied his own hands and feet with it, and said, The Holy Spirit says, In this way the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem will bind the owner of this belt and will hand them over to the Gentiles. When we heard this, we and the people there pleaded with Paul not to go to Jerusalem. It's not the first time he's been told not to go. Then Paul answered, Why are you weeping and breaking my heart? I am ready not only to be bound, but also to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. When he would not be dissuaded, we gave up and said, the Lord's will be done. When we heard this, we and the people, uh, no, I just did that. After this, we started on our way up to Jerusalem. Some of the disciples from Caesarea accompanied us and brought us to the home of Nason, uh, where we were to stay. He was a man from Cyprus and one of the early disciples. When we arrived at Jerusalem, the brothers and sisters received us warmly. The next day, Paul and the rest of us went to see James and all the elders were present. Paul greeted them and reported in detail what God had done, done among them, uh, what God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. And when they heard this, they praised God. I love this story. It's a story of sheer determination. I mean, the volume of locations they go to, the number of people he's ministering to. I love all these stories and pictures of hearts being broken, of tearing away from people, of weeping on the beach, like the level of intimacy and affection between Paul and the people he's ministering to. And then I love his determination, the steady stream of people like, the Spirit's making it really clear that when you get to Jerusalem, bad things are going to happen. Don't go. Like every person, the Spirit's revealing, this is what's going to happen. Don't go. And Paul's like, no. I know what I'm called to. I'm going to go with a sheer determination. He will not be deterred from the mission that God has given him. And it seems like with each story, and we're going to see more of this as the story goes on from here to the end, his conviction, each step closer to Rome, his conviction seems to get stronger. So there's like more reason to back away. And he seems more and more convinced that this is where he needs to go. 
I want to flip back to, to last week and just remind us of what Paul said uh, in the middle of Acts 20 as he's talking to the Ephesian elders, um, the similar theme. He says, and now compelled by the Spirit, I'm going to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen to me there. I only know that in every city, the Holy Spirit warns me that prison and hardship are facing me. However, I consider my life worth nothing to me. My only aim is to finish the race and complete the task the Lord Jesus has given me the task of testifying to the good news of God's grace. So just sit with those words a minute. I don't know exactly what's going to happen. I know that it's going to involve prison and hardship. My life is worth nothing. I just have to press on and complete what he's given me. You jump back into Acts 21. Why are you weeping and breaking your heart? I'm ready not only to be bound, but also to die in Jerusalem for the name of Jesus. And, and his uh, determination convinces the people around about to say, okay, the Lord's will be done. Little side note, I think it's really interesting in here. These people are saying, you know, I, uh, the Spirit's revealing to us that bad things are going to happen. Don't go. But after Paul's not persuaded, they're like, okay, now God's will. So, like, they, they understand the revelation of God, and yet they misinterpret what that means for their encouragement to the person around about. It's like God's speaking to you, but we want you here. So don't go, right? God, God wants you part of this church, so don't move to another place. You need to stay here and do this work with us. It's like, ah, oh, it, it's going to go bad over there. Don't go, um, because we want to keep them. But at the end of the day, the Lord's will be done. This beautiful moment. So, uh, I have this phrase or mantra that we're not going to put up quite yet, but when I was, uh, I grew up in a nominal Christian home, and I lived that pseudo-Christian life. We went to church on a Sunday, that was about the extent of it, and my mom run a kind of moms and tots group, a little bit like mops, but not really Jesus-y, just like a bunch of moms getting together and hanging out. And, uh, and we go to that during the week, and so we had church, we had our kids' classes, and, and then we had this, this thing. But that was the extent of our faith. There was no Bible study at home. We never talked about faith. I never saw her read the Bible. I never heard her pray. It just wasn't part of our family. We'd grown up, you go to church, you do your thing, you go home. And my mom uh, had served as, as in the kids' ministry for years and years and years, and uh, faithful to the church. My grandpa was an elder. My grandma was very involved. So... Uh, involved in the church around the church but but just nominally um, and it's so easy to participate in the life of the church and be a nominal christian you fast forward i'm in college um, and i'm at this point in my life where i am a I'm kind of getting fed up with church. No one was investing in me. Uh, I was seeing lots of hypocrisy. I was trying to reconcile my life and my past uh, with what I was seeing in scripture. And I just hit this point where I was fed up and I was like, this, this doesn't serve any purpose. It's just a bunch of rules and regulations. No one in the church is living up to them. And I was done. Um, and at that juncture in my life, sitting in a Starbucks, I met a man who was from the Pacific Northwest, who was there to plant a church, and, and we got in a conversation, and he said, hey, I would love to start meeting with you and mentoring you. Would you let me disciple you? And I was like, okay, because uh, that always goes well, right? Nothing, nothing changes. Um, and as we started reading through Scripture together, he's like, read Genesis, pick out the three things you love the most, let's meet next week and talk about it. So we'd meet and we'd talk. Uh, come back next week, read Exodus, pick the three things you love the most, and let's come back and talk next week. Go read Leviticus, get back together, pick the three things you love, let's talk. And after we would go, he would say to me, you know, if what you read in Scripture and how you're living your life don't line up, you've got to change. 
So you start the process of change. If what you read in Scripture and how you live your life don't line up, you begin the process of change. Through this process, he called me to give my life to Jesus in a way that I hadn't before. And, and in that, that, uh, that period of time, there was a mantra that became kind of the mantra of my life. It was the footer on all my emails. I wrote it in every birthday card I sent to someone. Uh, I wrote it, I was sleeping in a bunk bed. I wrote it on the wooden slats under the bed. I wrote it on the wall in my room. It was on all my notebooks at school. And, and the, the line was this, whatever God wants, whenever he wants it, whatever it costs. This was the mantra I was living my life by, whatever God wants, whenever he wants it, whatever the cost. And so this became the thing. There were lots of scriptures that helped build this mantra, but just this call, am I really going to do the things that God wants? Am I really going to do it when he's asking me to? And am I really willing to pay the price of this? Now, I mean, we're jumping back. For me, it's a long time. For you guys, it probably feels like just yesterday. Um, It's like 15, 20 years ago. But I, I'm, uh, we have this situation where I'm, I'm helping this guy plant a church. I'm overseeing all the website, the graphic design. Like, we're, we're going crazy. We're planting this church together. It's fantastic. And, but, but I had this little thing I did. I would jump online. There were all these websites you could go on. Like, Adobe Photoshop was really expensive. You could jump online. You could click a little button. It would download onto your computer for free. I think they call it piracy. Uh, and, and, and I was like, I had all this amazing software on my computer. And I remember this one day, I was doing some graphic stuff for the church, and, and he grabs me to the side, and we're talking, and he's like, did you buy that? I was like, no, wait till I show you this website. You can get it for free. It's awesome. Why should I pay a thousand bucks for this software all the way back then when I don't need to? Uh, and he just looks at me, and he's like, what's your mantra again? I was like, whatever God wants, whenever he wants it, whatever the cost. He's like, well, when I look in, in Scripture, like honesty, integrity, paying for the things that you're using, like what you're doing is theft. He's like, so if you uh, want to follow God wholeheartedly and you want to be a man of integrity, you need to delete all the pirate software off your computer. And I was like, but I do all this stuff for the church. How can I do all this graphic design if I don't have Adobe Photoshop? He's like, I'd rather not have graphics than have you using stolen software to make it. He's like, if you really need it, you'll find a way to buy it. And if you can't afford to buy it, then we don't need it. And I went away like, oh, geez. You know those moments where conviction's going on inside and you know it right away, but you're just like, oh, I'll just try and ignore that for a little while. <laughs> but I get home and I, I sit at my computer and I just, I'm like, dang, yeah, whatever God wants, whatever he wants it, whatever it costs. I'm online looking. At that point, Adobe Photoshop was newer. It was expensive. It really was about a thousand bucks. And I'm like, how do I do this? Um, <clears throat> I'm just checking. There's not any kids in here. I got a credit card. And I bought it with a plan to pay off, and I did. I bought it, and I systematically paid it off. It was the only way I could do it. I'm like, that's not the solution, people. Do not go get a credit card, get yourself in debt, right? There was a plan here. Um, I, did, I couldn't buy it right there and then. It was going to take me a year and a half to save up for it. So I was like, I had a system. I put it on the credit card, and I put money on it every month until it was paid off. Um, but I walk in the next day, Adobe Photoshop's on my computer. He's like you've still got Photoshop. I was, and I showed him the receipt. I was like, I bought this last night. Whatever God wants, whenever he wants it, whatever the cost, even if it means that I lose all of the fun that I want to do from here uh, because I have to spend a thousand bucks as an 21-year-old uh, on this software. 
Um, but the, it, one of those moments where I was challenged, and as I sat there, I start looking around, and I'm looking at this giant collection of DVDs we had that I'd burned all from online. And I'd even bought the cases, I'd found the artwork, I'd printed them out. And one day when my parents were out, I, I just, I'm like, I gotta get rid of all of these. Like, this is stolen. And I just got a pair of scissors and started cutting them all up. My mom comes in one day, in the middle of it, while, while I'm doing this. And she's like, what are you doing? I was like, wow, I feel like I shouldn't have these because they're pirated. She's like, well, let me pick my ones because uh, I paid for those. You can't cut those up. You can only cut up your own ones. I was like, okay, and I chopped up all of these DVDs that I spent hours downloading back when it was like dial-up just as broadband was beginning and it's taken hours and hours. Like I'd start it one night and it would be finished two days later. Like this was hours and hours of investment chopped up. But the reality was whatever God wants, whenever he wants it, whatever the cost. And there's been lots of times since then uh, where that comes back to me. There's been lots of times when there are situations where it's like, you know, it would be a lot easier not to go try and reconcile with that person, as I talked about last week, that hurt me. And God just goes, whatever I want, whenever I want it, whatever it costs. Um, we like to do whatever we want, a time convenient to us, with the minimal cost to us, unless it's really beneficial to us. But whatever God wants, whenever he wants it, whatever it costs. I shared before, I'm not going to recap, I shared the story in India um, where I had this opportunity to go minister to this person in a really persecuted area, having been given all of these warnings that something bad's going to happen in India, and I had to wrestle. I lay there in the back of this truck under a blanket going, whatever God wants, whenever he wants it, whatever it costs, even if the cost is my life. Um, Lots of ways that I rub up against this. Lots of ways that we as the church are called to give ourselves to Jesus. So the question is, as we're going to look at this, is that a commitment that you've made? Have you said to God, God, I am willing to do whatever you want, whenever you want it, whatever it costs. Because if you are, if you haven't, you're living the life of a half-hearted Christian. Are you willing to do whatever God wants, whenever he wants it, whatever it costs? So this is Acts Acts is written by Luke. This is the primary theme of Luke's writing, the cost of discipleship. And actually, if we jump back into Luke chapter 14, if you're looking at the four Gospels and the distinctions between them, the distinctive of Luke's Gospel when he's describing discipleship, it's all about the cost that you pay. Um, and there's through Luke's Gospel and through Acts, he's showing the cost. So this is Luke 14. Um, as Jesus is talking, large crowds were traveling with Jesus. Turning to them, he said, If anyone comes near me and does not hate father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, such a person cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not carry their cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. Suppose one of you wants to build a tower. Won't you first sit down and estimate the cost to see if you have enough money to complete it? For if you lay the foundation and are not able to finish it, everyone who sees it will ridicule you, saying, this person began to build and wasn't able to finish. Or suppose a king is about to go to war with another king. Won't he first sit down and consider whether he's able with 10,000 men to oppose the one coming against him with 20,000? If he's not able, he'll send a delegation while the other is still a long way off and will ask for terms of peace. In the same way, those of you who do not give up everything you have cannot be my disciples. Salt is good, but if it loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is neither fit for the soil nor for the manure pile, it is thrown out. Whoever has ears to hear, let them hear. 
He's saying discipleship has a cost. And when it comes to our faith, we're called to look at our faith, look at what Scripture requires of us, full allegiance to Christ over country, full allegiance to Christ over family, full allegiance to Christ over your own life, uh, full allegiance over everything. It's whatever God wants, whenever He wants, whatever it costs. We're called to evaluate that. And what happens, and this isn't a bad thing, what happens is we encounter Jesus often in the West in a way that's an invitation towards relationship with Christ that we then walk into looking for the benefits without considering the cost. So we say, Jesus, I want you. I want the eternal life with you. I want the peace that you're offering. But we don't make the step to say, whatever you want, I will give you. Whenever you want it, I'll do it. Whatever the cost is, I'm willing to pay it. And so then we end up with a, a country full of people in the church who are, are in some kind of relationship with Jesus, but they're not fully surrendered to him. Um, and then as we progress in our faith and we start growing, we feel conviction as we're listening to sermons, reading books, in conversation with people. Uh, and as we start moving forward, like we progressively are given, like I'll give this, like God's challenging my finances, I need to give to the church, I'm not giving anything, it's commanded in scripture, I should really be doing it. And then you go, okay, I'm going to start giving and we give that little, okay, in this little area, kind of what you want. I'm going to do it right now because you want it, and it's costing me. And then it's like over here, it's a, a reconciliation piece. So it's like, okay, I'll do this. But over here, it's like my job, my family, my way. Don't interfere with my sports. I have to watch. The, I'm not coming on Sunday because there's sport on TV. I have to watch it. I'm going fishing. Uh, it's my art class. It's my kids' competition. Uh, and, and we say, you know, as, as long as you don't touch these things, it's whatever you want in this domain, whenever you want it, as long as it doesn't impact these and whatever the cost, so long as not these things. That's the way we end up living our life. The call is, are you a person that's willing to commit whatever God wants, whenever he wants it, whatever the cost? Here's the other part of this. It's not a one-time event. This is something that happens. I mean, it's a daily event, but, but this is something that happens and should happen at every new season of your life. You give your life to Jesus. It's like, okay, whatever you want, whenever you want it, whatever the cost. You go to college, Okay, I'm in college now. So what's it look like in college when I have all these freedoms to live whatever you want, whenever you want it, whatever it costs? Okay, my first job, walking into this new career as I'm starting to push towards the thing that I've been dreaming about for a while. Go, whatever you want. Even if it means that I, it's a different career, even if it means it's not this stuff, it's, it's, it's getting married. I made the commitment as a single person. Well, now it's a marriage. Are we willing to commit in marriage? Whatever God wants, whenever he wants it, whatever it costs even if it means the death of my spouse. Then it's your first child. God, whatever you want, whenever you want it, whatever the cost, even if it means you take this child from me, am I willing to pay that price? What about empty nesting? As your kids are going out there and all of a sudden it's like, whoa, the kids are gone, freedom! <laughs> Stole that line from somewhere. Uh, but it's like, oh, freedom now. And we go, now, now's the chance for me. Now's the chance for us to do the things we've wanted to do. What about whatever God wants, whenever he wants it, whatever the cost? What about retirement? I've lived a full life. I've done all the stuff. I've put in my time. Now I have the freedom. Am I willing to say with my retirement, whatever God wants, whenever he wants it, whatever the cost? And, and then what about you? You've lost your spouse. Like, I know there's, there's widows and widowers in the room. Uh, are, are you going, you know, I lost this important person, my life has changed, but in this season, with a new singleness, whatever God wants, whenever he wants it, whatever the cost, are we willing to make those declarations? 
I want to look at these, uh, these verses, and I want to look at four things that we have to reject uh, that are clear in the passage. If you want to be someone that's going to live paying the cost of following Jesus, um, there are four things that the passage reveals that we need to reject. So the first one is this. We have to reject self-exaltation. So in the Acts 20 passage, when Paul's talking to the Ephesian elders, he says, I consider my life worth nothing to me. That's the opposite message to the message that we're given in the world today. Your life is so, now, our life is important. Scripture tells that part, right? You're fearfully and wonderfully made. You're created with a purpose. Set that aside. Our culture says you're so important, the world should revolve around you. Your rights, your way of being, your decision to do stuff. You need to, like, if you want to get something, you've got to claim it. Go after the things that are on your heart. You, like the, the American dream, like we're self-made people. Go make yourself, exalt yourself, lift yourself up. That's the opposite of the gospel message. We have to reject self-exaltation. The message that, that Paul at this part is, is showing is my life is worth nothing to me. That's the message of, of self-humiliation or self-emptying. Are we willing to be people that say, I'm going to stop trying to fight to be better and bigger than the people around about, and I'm going to start emptying myself instead? Um, with self-exaltation, we, we elevate ourselves above others. One of the ways we do that is we demonize others, right? So we start criticizing that group over there because if we can put them down enough, it elevates me enough. You know you're in the realm of self-exaltation if you're looking at groups of people out there, uh, and it doesn't need to be groups. It can be individual people. Well, that person got that thing, but they bought it on a credit card. I paid for it with cash, right? <laughs> we do that stuff. Um, self-exaltation, one of the tricky ways that this plays out in our life is the victim mentality. Victim mentality says, I'm going to demonize the other person as the oppressor, and I'm going to make them the negative antagonist in the story, and it makes me the, the poor protagonist that's been victimized. And what that sounds like is, it was their fault. If they hadn't done that, then things would be different. It's not my fault I'm in this situation. The circumstances led to this. It's self-exaltation. It's us looking at people, blaming to put them down and lift yourself up. Um, if we want to be like Paul, if we want to live whatever God wants, whenever he wants, or whatever the cost, we have to reject the temptation to self-exalt. Number two, you have to re reject self-declaration. What does that mean? Uh, declaring who you are. The freedom to say, this is who I am, and I get to choose it for myself. Um, in this passage, Paul says, you know, I, my life is worth nothing to me. My only aim is to finish the race and complete the task that the Lord has given me. It's, it's the Lord declaring the trajectory of his life. Um, culturally, we want to decide who we are. We want to decide oh, that's okay, what team we support, where we're going to live, what job we're going to have, what state we're going to be in. Right now, it, my biggest frustration right now is, I hate the way this state is governed. I'm moving to Idaho. Did you ask Jesus if he wants you in Idaho? What if Jesus wants you here ministering in Portland? You've just walked away from your calling in favor of comfort. If God says go, go. Like if God's telling you to go to a different state, please leave. I don't want you here ministering with us in an area where God doesn't want you ministering. I want you where he wants you. But we want to self-declare. We want to define what our identity is supposed to be. Paul is so clear all the way through his letters. You know, I'm the least of disciples. 
Like, I'm the apostle to the Gentiles. I'm chosen by God before the foundation of the world. Like, everything he does is defined by God. That's who declares who he is and what he's supposed to do. Ephesians 2.10, you know, we were created for good works that God prepared in advance for us to do. It's like, our culture says, decide what you want to do and go do it. And again, then you get shows like X Factor and American Idol. I want to be a pop star. I can't sing. But, and they go up there and we laugh at them because it's terrible. But it's like this, this message, go be who you want to be. Um, the gospel, the, the Bible tells us who we are. It declares our identity. That's supposed to be the thing that shapes what we're going to do. So if we're going to be people that do whatever God wants, whenever he wants it, whatever it costs, sometimes that's going to mean uh, putting to death the dreams that we've built to be able to embrace the dream that he's given or the command that he's issued. Um, what does this mean as a church? I'm talking individually, but corporately. We like to self-declare as a church. This is the kind of church we want to be. No, this is the kind of church God is calling us to be, which is what this series is all about. Self-declaring as a church often goes against the way God wants us to function in the world. So you have to say, God, what do you reveal to us in Scripture about what the church is supposed to do? Let's get out there in the world and do it. So if we want to do whatever God wants, whenever He wants it, whatever the cost, we're going to have to reflect on our identity and reject the cultural message that we get to self-declare who we are. The caveat if you embrace the identity that God gives in Scripture, your life will be fuller, you will be more whole, you will experience a joy that you can't get when you're self-declaring who you want to be. Doesn't mean there won't be struggle and hardship and having to uh, resist things inside that are tempting. Um, but we've got to reject that cultural uh, declare who you want to be and, and, and be whoever you want to be mentality. Number three, um, we have to reject self-preservation. So, so Paul, as he's talking, his response to these people, don't go. Bad things are going to happen. He says, I'm ready not only to be bound, but also to die in Jerusalem for the name of our Lord Jesus. We're like, I don't want to wear a mask. <laughs> and Paul's like, I'm willing to be bound and die. Like our mentality is so different to what they're doing. It's no self-preservation. It's not their own wants, their own identity. It's been willing to fully give. That's a bad example because that's not about following Jesus, right? It's not about losing your life for the sake of the gospel. It's just a current way that we, uh, <laughs> that we like to preserve our ways. But, but self-preservation is not just about preserving our life. It's about preserving our way of being in the world. Um, our, our politics, our theology, our form of church, our national identity, um, our style of music, our way of doing mission, the type of school that we attend, like we self-preserve in so many arenas. Um, we don't want to be hurt. I'm not going to step into that relationship with that person that hurt me before because I don't want to be hurt again. We self-preserve. You're in a situation where someone is speaking things that go against the truth of God, and some of them are people in the church that are speaking things that go against the truth of God, and we self-preserve. I don't want to speak up in this moment. What will they think about me? What if they reject me? What, what if I get kicked out because of the thing that I say? We don't want to miss out on opportunities. I'm just going to, I'm like, my social standing with this group of people is more important than what God wants. I'm going to go jump into these things that they're asking me to do, even although I know I shouldn't, because I'm self-preserving. I want to preserve these relationships. I want to preserve my social standing. Um, 
What about self-preserving when it's like, I really need to buy that thing. <laughs> My whole identity is around buying the trigger that I just bought. Um, <clears throat> it's like, are we willing to deny that, that purchase that we want to make, that place we want to go, that vacation we want to have? We're too busy self-preserving. Uh, we want our life. We want to look out for ourselves. We want to stay in our comforts. Um, we need to reject self-preservation because God is asking us to go to the people that will hurt us and become agents of reconciliation. He's asking us to empty ourselves and become nothing, to reach the people that he wants to reach. He's asking us to do things that are uncomfortable, knowing that the fruit of it isn't always going to turn out the way that we want it to. He's asking us to commit like, like you guys are doing. It. It's amazing. He's asking you to commit to a church that you're a part of that is changing and shifting and may not let you do things the way that you want to. Um, but it's about being committed to his will over preserving the system that we have in place. Last one, reject self-determination. Not my will, but your will be done, said Jesus. The people around Paul said, okay, the Lord's will be done. Are you willing to do things his way, or are you fighting for your own? Do you want to define your own identity, career path, location that you get to live in, church that you attend? Uh, or are you fighting for a life that's going to determine what's comfortable? Uh, what is your retirement going to look like? What job are you walking into? Um, what, you know, it's, the, it's the, the consumer Christianity. Like, I don't really like this church, so I'm going to go somewhere else that lets me stick in my way of thinking rather than being willing to grow. Um, we have to reject the temptation to determine our future apart from him and be willing to submit ourselves to him if we want to be people who do whatever God wants, whenever he wants it, whatever it costs. I want to read you a little part of this book. Uh, this is a book that was uh, not this exact copy. I was handed a copy of this book when I was 21. Uh, I had Josh in my office the other day. We were talking about it. There's, there's a story in this book that back then was part of shaping this mentality the call to radical obedience, to be willing to serve God, whatever the cost. Um, and the story in here has stuck with me uh, since, since I read it and shaped the way I live my life. And so I, I want to read this. This is a book by John Piper called Don't Waste Your Life. So there's two stories here. He says, in April 2000, uh, Ruby Eliasson and Laura Edwards were killed in Cameroon, West Africa. Ruby was over 80 Single all her life, she poured out for one great thing, to make Jesus Christ known among the unreached, the poor, and the sick. Laura was a widow, a medical doctor pushing 80 years old, and serving at Ruby's side in Cameroon. The brakes failed, their car went over a cliff, and they were both killed instantly. I asked my congregation, was that a tragedy? Two lives driven by one great passion, namely to be spent in unheralded service to the perishing poor for the glory of Jesus Christ. Even two decades after most of their American counterparts had re retired to throw away their life on trifles. No, that is not a tragedy. That is a glory. These lives were not wasted and these lives were not lost. Whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. Mark 8.35. I will tell you what a tragedy is. I will show you how to waste your life. Consider a story from the February 1998 edition of Reader's Digest, which tells about a couple who, quote, uh, in any quotes, they took early retirement from their jobs in the Northeast five years ago when he was 59 and she was 51. 
Now they live in Punta Gorda, Florida, where they cruise on their 30-foot trawler, play softball, and collect shells. At first, when I read it, I thought it might be a joke, a spoof on the American dream, but it wasn't. Tragically, this was the dream. Come to the end of your life, your one and only precious God-given life, and let the last great work of your life before you give an account to your Creator be this, playing softball and collecting shells. Picture them before Christ at that great day of judgment. Look, Lord, see my shells. <laughs> that is a tragedy. And people today are spending billions of dollars to persuade you to embrace that tragic dream. Over against that, I put my protest. Don't buy it. Don't waste your life. Don't waste your life. Are you willing to say to Jesus, I will do whatever you want, whenever you want it, whatever it costs. Even if that means at 80 years old, I walk away from my grandkids and I go to the other end of the globe to minister to people that are hurting. Even if it means social suicide by walking away from this group of people that are bad influences to pursue Christian brothers and sisters that are going to help me become who he wants me to be. Even if it means the death of the dream that you don't get the big house, you don't get the flashy car, you don't get the church that's formed exactly how you want it. Um, are you willing to do it? Are you willing to commit to him today? God, I will do whatever you want whenever you want it, whatever it costs. And this is reality. If this room was filled with people saying, God, whatever you want, whenever you want it, whatever it costs, there's nothing that can stop us. Um, are you willing to make that commitment? Let me pray. Jesus, it's beautiful because you were the person that came to earth and said, whatever God wants, whenever he wants it, whenever it costs, whatever it costs. There are moments where people said, hey, come do this thing. He said, it's not my time. It's whatever God wants, whenever he wants it, whatever it costs. Thank you for the example of Paul. Um, his life was on the line, uh, and people coming to him aware of it, saying the Spirit's making it clear you're going to die. So don't go. Like, last a little longer. Stay with us and minister with us. We'll protect you. He says, whatever God wants. Whenever he wants it, whatever the cost. It's the thing that's taken me and Monica around the world. It's the thing that takes people to the ends of the earth. It's the, it's the mentality that led to Jim Elliot and his three friends losing their lives, ministering to a tribe that would kill them. Uh, Lord, it's the, it's, it's the commitment that has men and women around the world imprisoned right now because they've been sharing your gospel. It's the commitment that led my friend's 13-year-old church member uh, to be brutally killed in a field because he declared his love for you, no matter the cost. And so God, we wanna be that kind of church. We need you to shake us up, to wake us up. God, we don't wanna be standing at the end going, look at my shells, look at my book collection, look at my shoe collection, look at my house, look at the car. Um, look at the parties I threw, God. We wanna get to the end and say, God, look at the work that I did for you. I gave everything. I spent everything, and uh, uh, all for you, for your glory. So God, would you uh, make us a church who will do whatever you want, whatever you want it, whatever it costs, in Jesus' name.